We need a global policeman, and the United States is the only reliable and desirable candidate for that job. I think his remarks are divisive, stupid and wrong, and I think if he came to visit our country, I think he'd unite us all against him. Donald Trump is a leader. He will reassert America's position as the nation with the best values to lead the world. When you have the nuclear codes at your fingertips, you can't have a thin skin or a tendency to lash out. You need to be steady and measured and well-informed. If I was an American citizen, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. I have great faith in the American people. Look forward to working with whoever gets elected in November. Hello and welcome to The Global Election on Monocle 24. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Climate change hasn't played much of a role in this year's election. In fact, there wasn't a single mention of it in any of the three presidential debates. That's not because climate change has suddenly become less important. It certainly hasn't. Nor is it because both candidates are in agreement. They certainly aren't. In fact, those disagreements make it only more vital that we talk about it. Donald Trump, for instance, has called climate change a hoax, created, he says, by and for the Chinese in order to make US manufacturing non-competitive. He has also vowed to pull out of the recent Paris Agreement. For the rest of the world, this would be a disaster. The global fight against climate change would continue. It would even continue inside the US, where states, cities and universities are at the forefront of the battle. But it would be much, much harder without a president who really believes in it. Other big polluters, like China, would be less inclined to go the extra mile. Once again, this is an issue where what happens in America enormously affects what happens outside. Welcome to the global election. This week, we're talking to two people who've been at the forefront of the battle against climate change. Michael Jacobs is a climate change economist who was a special advisor to the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown. We'll hear from him in a moment. But first, let's speak to Connie Hedegaard. She's a Danish politician who in 2009 chaired the ill-fated Copenhagen talks before spending five years as the European Commissioner for Climate Action. In short, she knows just how tricky international cooperation on this issue can be. Connie Hedegaard, thank you very much for joining us today. Does the world need American leadership in order to effectively tackle climate change? Yes, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone what it means when U.S. leads compared to when U.S. does not engage. Because we saw for really many years in climate change that U.S. was really not engaging, was definitely not leading. And we have seen in recent years what kind of difference it makes when the United States actually engages much more. And maybe we have seen it most when it comes to how China reacts. I think it's extremely important that the U.S. engages in order to make China stay involved. And so then when you see a presidential candidate like Donald Trump say that climate change is a hoax created by China and to then say that he doesn't believe action needs to be taken, does that fill you with some amount of trepidation? Yeah, I must say it's absurd, but it's absurdities on absurdities, you know. And this is really not just absurd and something you can smile at and, you know, shake your head. It's really, really serious what is happening in the next four years in the U.S. Take 
if U.S. suddenly said, okay, now we are withdrawing from Paris, as Donald Trump has said he would, we want to, as he's putting it, renegotiating Paris, we all know that then Paris would be dead. We all know that then you will not have an international framework and the agreement that marks anymore. And we, many of us, at least know how long time it would take to agree anything alternatively. That is not going to happen, and we would waste a lot of time, a lot of very, very precious time. If we listen to scientists, we know that time is running out. So you could put it this way, that the world simply does not have the time for Donald Trump to sort of not understanding this, to denying the scientific facts. It would really be very, very serious, not just for the United States and its leading position, but for all of us. When you say, look, it could derail the Paris Agreement, that we don't have time for this, what would that actually mean? What would happen in practical terms if the US were to pull out of the Paris Agreement? Well, but now we are into total hypothetical land uh, because everyone has been trying very, very hard to ensure that Paris will actually enter into force this next November, uh, which is historically fast. And there is this clause in the Paris Agreement saying that it would take from you, would announce that you want to leave this agreement. It would take, I think it is, four years. So that would mean that a single-term Trump mandate, they could destabilize the whole thing, they could shake up the whole thing, they could create a lot of mistrust to this whole Paris Agreement, but they would not be able to withdraw U.S. in, in the first four years. So... In reality, the agreement would still stand, but my big concern is how would this look to a lot of, say, developing countries, to a lot of emerging economies? I mean, when China finally decided to step into this, it was also related to their assumption that now the U.S. was taking their fair responsibility. So if that signal suddenly were to be changed from the United States, how would that affect a China that has bigger economic troubles now than they used to have only a few years back. So that is why the politicians' signals actually matter on the ground. And then we have not spoken about the uncertainty to investors in the United States. Think what that would mean. Right now, renewables are booming. A lot of jobs are created. Energy efficiency is being discussed and the cities are moving. Buildings are being renovated. All these kind of things creating jobs. What would happen to all this and to all these investments if suddenly the president of the United States would say the whole thing is a hoax? And just finally, do you think that much would change in America's position on climate change between the positions of the Obama administration and the Hillary Clinton administration, were she to win? I saw that uh, candidate uh, Clinton said something pretty strong in Florida around climate change. And I think that uh, also with John Podesta uh, being in her camp uh, as active as he is there and really understanding this and uh, Mrs. Clinton herself really understanding climate change. I think that there might be some changes that sort of the profound track would continue and there would be no doubt that the U.S. would continue its leadership. Whether the priority would be as strong as we have seen in the last two years with the Obama administration is still to be seen. But I think seen from a climate perspective, there can be really no doubt 
what the world should hope for with the American elections. Connie Hedegaard, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Global Election here on Monocle 24. I'm joined now by Michael Jacobs. After his spell at 10 Downing Street, Jacobs was the senior advisor to the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, working closely with a number of governments in the run-up to Paris. Michael Jacobs, thank you very much for joining us today. If we were to look back, first of all, to the 2008 election, uh, Barack Obama made the fight against climate change a big part of that election. Over the eight years he's had in office, has that been matched by policy? Yes, in the end, I think is the answer to that. Obama's first strategy, so in his first term, was to try and get climate change legislation through Congress, which was a reasonable thing to try. There was quite a strong body of support amongst businesses as well as campaign organisations for a Climate Change Act of Congress. And John Kerry, who was then a senator, worked very hard along with various other members of Congress to get a bill Uh, There was a bill which went through the House of Representatives, but it never got through the Senate. And in the end, in 2010, Obama had to admit defeat. And so it meant that effectively for his first term, not very much happened on climate change. But in his second term, he took a different approach, which was to do this as the executive arm of government himself. So he basically bypassed Congress. And he was able to do this because the Supreme Court ruled that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases were pollutants under the terms of the Clean Air Act, which had previously been used to regulate sulfur dioxide and other things we normally think of as air pollutants. But the Supreme Court ruled that you could regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the existing legislation. So you didn't need a new bit of uh, legislation to pass through Congress. And once he had that authority, he set the Environmental Protection Agency, which is part of the administration's armory, to work on effectively regulating carbon dioxide out of the American economy, particularly by bearing down on coal-fired power stations and other forms of dirty emissions. And he has been able to achieve a lot in his second term. And American emissions are now on a firm downward trend. And he will regard this as one of his principal legacies. Is there a danger then that because so much of the positive climate change policy over the last few years has been enacted through executive order that it can also be scrapped by executive order? Yes and no. So the other big thing that's happened which has helped him is the advent of shale gas in the United States. So shale gas has replaced coal on cost grounds, not on regulatory or policy grounds. And that means that American emissions are much less, even without the executive authority that President Obama has wielded. And that will remain. Once you start seeing the way in which the American energy system is going, you see that, in fact, uh, there is a lot of change towards lower carbon forms of energy, which is not policy driven and certainly not driven by the president's policy. So, for example, wind and solar have taken off uh, hugely in the US, all over the US, even in places such as Texas, which are you know, traditionally thought of as fossil oil states. And that is occurring because the cost, the technology cost of those forms of energy have dramatically fallen in price and they're now becoming cost effective. And in addition, it's happened because most states in the US have now got what they call renewable energy mandates 
mandates where they're deliberately promoting renewable energies through either through tax breaks or feed-in tariffs. And all of this is happening outside the federal policy of which the president is responsible. So although it is true that were Donald Trump to become president, quite a lot of what Obama has done at federal level would be scrapped, I'm sure. A lot of the things that have been going on over the last few years will continue because they're happening because of the market and because of what states are doing, not under the president's direction. I I wanted to pick up on that issue then of what states are doing and cities and indeed a lot of the best innovation is coming out of universities. In a sense, does it really matter as much now as it might have done 10 years ago? what direction is coming from the White House? No, I don't think it does. And this is the big shift which has occurred in the US, but it's also occurred everywhere, which is that the low carbon economy now has its own momentum because of the shift in the cost of technologies. So solar power is 90% cheaper than it was six years ago, wind power 50% cheaper. And that has driven these technologies into the market initially with some policy. Part of the reason that they've come down is because policy encouraged them. There were renewable energy requirements uh, in the US and also in Europe and so on, which helped bring the price of these technologies down. But now that they are down, they're competing, they're out-competing coal and gas, the fossil fuels and oil in the market. And so policy is much less needed. The other thing that I think has happened over the last six years or so, which is also made made a huge difference is once these technologies, and this is also true of energy technologies and more efficient cars, electric vehicles, and so on, it's not just in energy production. Once these technologies start being implemented on a big scale, you get business lobbies who are in favour of policy to encourage them. So there is now a huge solar industry in the United States, partly manufacturers, but also mainly installers of solar, who are very keen on the state level mandates, which encourage installation of solar. And that makes it harder for policymakers to reverse the drift of policy towards a lower carbon economy. And so there's been these two trends, I think. One is the technology and the costs have fallen. And the other one is you've now got business lobbies, which are in support of those things. And in many ways, you would say that the fossil fuel economy is in retreat and the business lobbies attached to that are in retreat. And the new tech companies, the energy technology companies that are supporting this are the ones in the ascendant. And that's a huge shift from, say, 10 years ago. When we look at what might happen after this election, we can leave Trump just for now, but I want to focus on Hillary Clinton and what she would do as president. Do you think we're going to see a continuation, essentially, of Obama policies in a Clinton White House when it comes to climate change? Or do you think there will be a shift in some way? No, I think she will continue pretty much what President Obama has done and indeed gradually accelerate it because the first wave of of the Obama plan, which is to regulate coal-fired power stations, is now well underway. The other major thing he did was improve vehicle fuel efficiency standards. And I think once those things are have worked their way through the economy and through all the states, then Hillary Clinton will ramp up the policies because the challenge here is bigger than Obama has been able to achieve. He's done a lot, but America started on this path 20 years later than Europe, and they are well behind where the world needs the United States to be to tackle climate change. And we've always got to remember in in this field, whatever the success is, they're never enough. 
climate change is causing huge damage already in many parts of the world and including in the United States where the droughts on the west coast in California over recent years have been absolutely horrendous and done tremendous damage to the American economy and this is only going to get worse even while we take action because climate change unfortunately is caused by the emissions that we made 30 years ago because of the lag that the greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere and the effect they have on the climate. So policy is going to have to get tighter and tighter. Fortunately, the costs are coming down. It's becoming easier to do these things. Innovation is now occurring rapidly in many of these areas. So it's not as difficult as it once was. But I think you will see a Clinton White House strengthen policy over time for those reasons. And what sort of pushback do you think she's likely to get from Congress. It's always seems strange from this side of the Atlantic how climate change has become such a partisan issue in the US. And obviously there are some Republicans like Hank Paulson, obviously Michael Bloomberg used to be a Republican, who are very strong on climate change, but very few of those characters uh, seem to have a voice in Congress. Uh, yeah, there's only one uh, Republican in certainly in the Senate who has remained in favour of action on climate change, which is Lindsey Graham. Others used to. So John McCain was a strong supporter of action on climate change, including when he was a presidential candidate. But under the pressure of the Tea Party and right wing forces in the Republican Party, even he has sort of gone back and now sort of talks about being much more sceptical about the science, which is a disaster. And it's a disaster for the Enlightenment project on which the American Republic was founded. But it's also a disaster in trying to get consensus around policy. Because as you say, the situation has become so polarised. For many Republicans, climate change, you have to be against climate change. You can't be a Republican if you are in favour of acting on climate change. You know, the idea that it's a hoax in some way, that it's a conspiracy, that it's all anti-American, it will all damage the economy and so on, is kind of an article of faith now on most of the Republican Party, made worse, of course, by the Trump campaign of the last year. And this is disastrous for policymaking, partly because you need significant majorities to pass legislation in Congress, and partly because you can't create a consensus amongst the public. If you look at opinion polls, most Americans believe that climate change is a big problem and want governments to take action on it. But Congress doesn't represent those views very well. So it is a problem. And it will mean that unless there is a dramatic shift in the composition of Congress following the election in a couple of weeks time, which there could be, Clinton as president would have to continue the Obama strategy of working through executive action. And the problem with that is that it becomes harder and harder. The things he's done so far were relatively easy to do under the Clean Air Act, which gave the president the authority, but they run out of steam after a while. So this will be the major challenge for a Clinton presidency, which is how to take the next wave of action on climate change. And just finally, the chances of a Donald Trump presidency are rather low at the moment. Um, But let's say he does get in. What sort of damage can he do to America's fight against climate change? Are there things that supporters of climate change action can do to prevent him doing too much damage? So a Trump presidency would be disastrous in every possible respect. And so this is only one of them. And it's one where because the states are now taking so much action autonomously, some of what he he would do would not have as damaging effect as it might have done a few years ago when more of the action was occurring at federal level. So American states will continue to support renewable energy and the market for renewable energy will continue to grow as the technologies become cheaper. And in that respect, 
the president can do less damage, as it were, than would have been true a few years ago. And internationally, although President Trump has said he would pull out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, the agreement is very cleverly designed with exactly this possibility in mind. And in the rules of the agreement, it takes four years for a country to withdraw from the agreement. So even if he started that process at the beginning of his presidency, he would not complete it during one term. And so America would in fact stay in the international regime and would therefore still be bound by the international regime. And the next round of commitments which the United States would have to make occur in 2018 and 19 and 2020. And under the terms of the international agreement, countries have to do more in those years than they are doing now. So although a President Trump would no doubt try to reverse some of the climate legislation, he would no doubt pull funding from the Environment Agency, he would contest the Environment Agency's powers under the law. In some ways, protections have now been built in through the market, through American states and through the international regime. And so it's possible that we could say he wouldn't be able to do as much damage as he would like. Michael Jacobs, thank you very much indeed. Next time on The Global Election, we'll be discussing isolationism. What will it mean if the US cuts itself off from the rest of the world? My guests will include the UK's former Defence and Foreign Secretary, Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Clearly, if Trump was to succeed, that would have such a profound and troubling impact that in practice it would make the rest of the world distance themselves from the United States. And that would be very, very damaging. I think so far as Hillary Clinton, if she became president, then we would have essentially a continuity. I mean, neither Obama nor Clinton are interested in isolationism. Where they do differ is that Obama has had a much more reserved foreign policy, a much greater unwillingness to show leadership in some areas, and that has created anxiety amongst traditional allies. That's it for episode six of The Global Election. Episode seven, the penultimate episode, will be available from next Friday. You can't vote for us, but you can rate us. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating on iTunes? You can also find us on SoundCloud, monocle.com slash radio, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Global Election was produced by Rhys James. It was researched by Bill Lutie and edited by Alex Funnell. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.